Let's ask God uh, to help me uh, speak his word truthfully and clearly and help us all to understand it and receive what it says and know its encouragement. Please pray with me as I pray for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now that in uh, my weakness, uh, you would grant me to speak your word truthfully and clearly, uh, that people would see in this earthen vessel uh, the great treasure of your gospel and the hope it gives. And help us all to understand it and in your mercy believe the gospel and know that hope for ourselves and be strengthened and encouraged in living the life of those who know that Christ will raise them from the dead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In a world where we all must die and where we all live our lives against the backdrop of ever-present death, a presence that intrudes itself into our lives in a myriad of ways, whether that's in pandemic or car crash headlines or in pictures of past grandparents on the wall or just the simple act of doing up your seatbelt. Life, death intrudes into life. In this world, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which is central to the Christian gospel, gives a hope like no other to those who believe in him a hope of being raised from death themselves, a resurrection which is sure, glorious and life-shaping. And as we follow on from looking at Paul's catalogue of the witnesses to Jesus' resurrection in verses 3 to 11 of 1 Corinthians 15, to consider this evening the rest of the chapter, it's those three things I want you to understand and be convinced of that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus means his people, those who believe in him by believing his gospel, will most certainly rise from the dead, that the believer's resurrection is sure. Secondly, that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus means the resurrection of believers will be glorious, unimaginably glorious. And thirdly, that the resurrection of Jesus and the sure and glorious hope of resurrection it gives rise to means that believers in Jesus do and should live different lives now. For Christian hope is not just about how you die, it's about knowing how you live. Just as the goal of a car trip, the chosen destination, determines the roads taken and at key turning points the direction followed throughout the journey, so the hope believers gratefully receive in believing the gospel should and will direct our decisions throughout life until our end, until we arrive at our destination to rise with Christ in the new heaven and earth. So let's uh, pick up the chapter at verse 12. As far as we can tell, uh, the vast majority of the Corinthian believers were Gentiles, people of Greek and Roman background, and the letter to this point is demonstrated uh, with the evidence of their competition for status and prestige that they're a group of people who are very much influenced by their culture. And a feature of this dominant culture was a commitment to the immortality of the soul where many thought of the body as a prison, something that bound the soul to this earth and so to pain and desire. 
And for them, any desirable future after death, if there was a future at all, had to do with the soul being freed from the body. And so resurrection, which is always understood as resurrection of the body, just didn't make sense to them. It was a culturally alien idea, which means that when it comes to the Christian hope, the Corinthians appeared to have become seriously muddled. They accepted the gospel, God has raised Jesus from the dead, but had separated Jesus' resurrection from the future hope of believers, denying, as we see in verse 12, the resurrection of believers. Some are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. And so Paul, in a kind of logical masterclass, shows them in verses 12 to 19 the consequences of that denial. And it will be really good to keep your Bible open and follow along. And he starts by saying, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You see, Paul will not allow the Corinthians to separate what happened to Christ after his death from what will happen to his people after their death. You see, what is denied to humans is also denied to Christ, for he is a real and true human. If the human dead are not raised, if that's impossible, as the Corinthians say, then Christ, who was a human and who died, well, then he can't have been raised either. And so, says Paul, let's think through the consequences of that. If Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation's in vain, so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised Pretty serious, says Paul, if Christ has not been raised. Preaching and faith are useless. Worse, we are liars about God. And while they're digesting that, he repeats his key point. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and he gives them more to think about. Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, We should be pitied more than anyone. If Christ has not been raised, the whole thing, the whole Christian gig is a fraud and a failure. We've just been conned if we're believers and we've wasted our lives. Now, these verses are a reminder, aren't they? The good, clear thinking is not the enemy of faith. It's actually the servant of faith and part of our love for God. And with good, clear thinking, Paul has demonstrated to the Corinthians and to us that if you rule out because of your cultural preferences resurrection as a possibility, if you try and find some other more philosophically acceptable expression of the Christian hope, you know, you want to talk about the spirit going on or that it's all about going to be with God when you die in some disembodied state, or worse, you say that, you know, being a Christian is just about how you live a moral life now. If you say those things, if you make that the Christian hope, you lose everything. For you have denied the resurrection of Christ on which everything depends. While what happens to Christ after death and what happens to believers after death are distinguishable in time, in significance, they cannot be separated. They are connected. One, the resurrection of Jesus guarantees the other, the resurrection of believers in Jesus. 
And that's the point implicit already in Paul saying that Christ has died according to the scriptures, been raised according to the scriptures. That's the point that Paul now makes explicit in verses 20 to 28. You see, he says to the Corinthians, the position they maintain on the resurrection of believers is not only disastrous, it's contrary to fact. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's, he said, remember the believer's starting point. That's the gospel all preach. Christ died for our sins, he's buried, he's raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And it's the gospel for which Paul has just given witnesses, just being through the witnesses in verses 4 to 11 of Christ raised from the dead. And he now gives them an image that helps them see the relationship between Christ's resurrection and the believer's resurrection. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits is an image they'd all get. You see, they lived in basically an agricultural society. They're all conscious of the agricultural year and of the harvest on which next year's food depended. The first fruits was the first part of the harvest that was the assurance of the rest of the harvest by being in unbroken connection with the rest of the harvest, part of the same movement of maturing grain. And so the first fruits was prior to the rest of the harvest, representative of the rest of the harvest and the pledge of the rest of the harvest. Paul, with this image, is saying that Christ's resurrection and the believer's resurrection are earlier and later parts of the same event where the earlier Christ's resurrection is the promise and guarantee of the later. His resurrection, the promise and guarantee of ours. Now, how is that so? What's the connection? Well, it's not just that Christ is a human. It's because of the human he is. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. The Lord Jesus, says Paul, (coughs) is the second and final Adam who has in himself already defeated death in his resurrection. You see, Paul's understanding of our human situation is shaped by Genesis 1 to 3. In the creation story, Adam is a royal figure entrusted with rule over all creation, the one in whose decisions all his descendants are included. And we also learn in those chapters that Adam is the king who failed, who did not trust, love and obey God but disobeyed and by his disobedience brought death to all who are his. But in the Gospels, we see Christ is also a royal figure, bringing the reign reign of God in his presence. And he's the king who has triumphed over death by his obedient death and so brought resurrection, the promised end-time resurrection, into history. He is the king who brings life to all who are his, in him by faith, spiritually joined to him. And here in verses 23 to 27, verses that are really very tightly packed, 
with truth. Paul, by referring to two Psalms, Psalm 110 and Psalm 8, tells us what it means for Jesus to be the victorious Christ. (coughs) Psalm 110 tells us, verses 24 to 25, when it speaks of him reigning until all his enemies are put under his feet, tells us that he will rule over all things, all rule, all authority, all power. But Paul doesn't stop at Psalm uh, Psalm 110. He goes on to quote in verse 27, Psalm 8. Let me read you again, because Lynn's read already, that part part of the psalm that uh, Paul quotes. When I observe your heaven, says the psalmist, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what's a human being that you remember him or the son of man that you look after him? You have made him little less than God (coughs) and crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over over the works of your hands and you put everything under his feet. Now Psalm 8 is a psalm about humanity and humanity's place in God's creation. It speaks of God's creation intention that humanity, Adam, would rule creation. And Paul highlights verse 6. God has put everything under his feet and says that that everything includes death. And it must, must be so. For otherwise death would continue as a power that itself rules over every human, that brings every human into submission to its reign. Either man rules or death rules. Paul is saying the Lord Jesus is the man, the fulfiller of this psalm, that in Jesus God's plan for his good creation, marred by human sin and death, will be realised. Realised through the destruction of death once and for all, the last enemy. This psalm tells us God's purposes for Jesus' reign and for the restoration of creation in his reign are only fulfilled when we believers are raised, when death's rule is reversed in the place it is experienced in our bodies that now return to dust. That fulfilment is certain. For Jesus' resurrection reveals Jesus now as the Christ, the last Adam who has already defeated death. Now there's an order in the defeat of death. Christ now in his resurrection, the first fruits, the pledge and guarantee of that defeat of death, then at his coming, at the revelation of our Lord Jesus' royal glory, when every knee bows to him, all those who are his. (coughs) And that is the end. For death is the last enemy. And the resurrection of believers is the demonstration that all things are subjected to the Lord Jesus Christ, the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. See, Paul at this point, though, clarifies something that may be misunderstood by... The talk of everything being put under Christ's feet. It's plain, he says, that God is accepted. It's obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything's subject to Christ, 
then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. You see, Paul hasn't been talking about establishing a human reign independent of God, but the fulfilment of God's purposes for humanity and creation in Christ. The Son's reign is about re-establishing the order established at creation and disrupted by Adam seeking an independent reign. Christ's mission was always about bringing creation to perfect submission to God, which always involves the ordering of man, humanity in Christ, creation's ruler under God. This submission is a great moment of fulfilment and achievement. And just as in the achievement of salvation on the cross, the Son's submission to the Father is his glory, as he gives glory to the Father in all things, shows God to be all in all. Now, there is a lot going on in those verses and their use of the Old Testament. But the clear point is our resurrection is sure because of who Jesus is, the Christ, the last Adam, and because of the place of his coming and triumph in the purpose of God, a purpose that demands the subjugation and destruction, the end of death itself, as the fulfilment of God's good plans for his creation from the beginning. (coughs) The resurrection of believers is the resurrection of the triumph of the creator God over all that would destroy and mar his good creation. And not only is it sure for Christ has been raised, The resurrection of Jesus tells us it will be glorious. Paul makes this point by addressing some of the intellectual objections that the Corinthians and others might have to the resurrection, to the possibility of an embodied future after death. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? They're asking, how can resurrection be possible? How can we think it is at all possible? that after someone dies they could live in their body a life in continuity with the embodied life they have now. I mean, we all know that you put the body in the ground and it just rots, its molecules get recycled. So how is resurrection, embodied life in continuity with this embodied life possible? And how can we imagine a body that's fit for a blessed life, for life with God, a body that does not bring with it all the griefs and pains, the frailties of bodily life now. Well, Paul in verses 36 to 42 deals with these objections by making four points as an introduction to his showing us in verses 42 to 49 just how glorious that resurrection will be. And his first point is the pastorally sensitive one of saying, you fool. Now, uh, Paul's not being impatient. He's locating the objector's fundamental problem. It is with God, a too small view of God, a God who is just a projection of human possibilities. You see, the fool in the Old Testament is someone who's a practical atheist, someone who says in his heart there is no God, who thinks and lives as if the living God is either just like them or isn't. 
If you don't think resurrection is possible, says Paul, the problem you have is with God. See, that's what Jesus said to the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. You're wrong (coughs) because you know not the scriptures or the power of God. The true God is the God who brought all things into existence from nothing. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And secondly, verses 36 again and 37, by the seed analogy, talking about the seed that's sown in the ground, Paul reminds us that God's actually always bringing life from death. The death of our body is not an objection to the resurrection or its denial, it's its presupposition. And thirdly, verses 37 to 38, that life is not more of the same. (coughs) As for what you sow, you're not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed perhaps of wheat or another grain, but God gives it a body as he wants and to each the seed its own body. You see, new life from death involves transformation as well as continuity, massive transformation, seed to plant, acorn to oak. As Wright says, Paul is also arguing for a bodily resurrection very different from mere resuscitation. You see, a seed doesn't come to life by being dug up brushed down and restored to its pristine seediness. See, if it's not mere resuscitation, you see, don't you, that resurrection is is not going to be frustrated by the decay of our present bodies and the dispersal of their molecules. It's a great transformation. And fourthly, Paul says in verses 38 to 41, that creation shows us that God has no shortage of bodies. Not all flesh is the same flesh. It's one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish, heavenly bodies, earthly bodies. God's got no shortage of bodies and each one is perfectly fitted for its environment and demonstrates its appropriateness to all. And that includes bodies fit for a heavenly environment. The glory, CSB, splendour of a body, is actually the manifestation of its reality, its splendour in being what it truly is. And the glory of bodies shows how right they are for the sphere they inhabit, the sphere they occupy in God's creation. And the resurrection bodies of believers will also manifest their glory show how perfectly fitted they are for their new environment, the new heaven and earth where God dwells. (coughs) So it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonour, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power. Paul starts with three contrasts between the resurrection body and our present bodies, the bodies revealed in their death, in their being sown in the ground as corruptible, dishonoured and weak. Corruption says that our present bodies are marked by mortality and decay, which becomes manifest in our dying, in our inability to sustain life and bodily integrity and the rotting of our flesh, But corruption actually is a condition that characterises our bodies even when alive. And we feel in death, don't we, our dishonour and weakness. We're excluded from life, even from our own wakes. 
and unable to leave the prison of our tombs. By contrast, the resurrection body will be incorruptible. It will never know decay and failure. Glorious, expressing truly our reality as God's children, powerful, able to do all that it wills, including the good we will. And it will be this because it has a different power of life, a different animating principle, one that comes from Christ, not Adam. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. That's the point of verses 44 to 49. And because these verses can be misunderstood, let's pause and think through what Paul is saying. And to help, I've put up verses 44 to 46 uh, with the key verses, again, uh, transliterated. Yes, good. Great. Uh, With the key verses transliterated. Let me read what it says. He says, it's sown... uh, Whoops. Good. It's sown, let's say, a Sukikos body. It's raised a pneumaticos body. If there's a Sukikos body, there's also a pneumaticos body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living Suki. The last Adam became a life-giving pneuma. However, the pneumaticos is not first, but the Sukikos, and then the pneumaticos. Now, Paul is talking about bodies, our present mortal bodies, which he describes either as Sukikos bodies and our resurrection bodies, which he describes as pneumaticos, spiritual bodies, but both are bodies. By the terms Sukikos, translated natural, and pneumaticos, spiritual, Paul is not describing what the respective bodies are made of, as if there's a kind of spiritual stuff. You see, the translation natural might suggest that, but it's actually better to translate that word sukikos by coining a new word, soulish, because the suke is a word often understood as the soul. And so Paul's saying it's sown a soulish body. You see, sukikos, soulish, describes the life of this age. The life from Adam, who, verse 45, becomes a living suke, a living soul. The suke is the life we have from Adam, the life that animates these present bodies that we have from Adam. And that life is contrasted with the life we have from Christ, the Spirit. See, Christ, the last Adam, became, it says, a life-giving spirit. That is, the source of the spirit to all who believe in him. Now, if you've been reading through 1 Corinthians, you would have already, though you may not have noticed it, uh, been exposed to this contrast between spiritual and soulish. Uh, uh, And it's not a contrast between what someone is made of. Way back in chapter 2, Paul said, but the person without the spirit. And the phrase is actually the Sukikos anthropos, the Sukikos man, that is, the person who only has the life of this age does not receive what comes from God. And it's contrasted with the spiritual person, the pneumaticos person who has the life of the spirit. And again, it's a contrast between what informs and directs what animates a person's life not what their bodies are made of. 
You see, the key difference between this present corruptible and mortal body and the resurrection body is where you get your life from. Whose life sustains your bodily life? Is it life from Adam, the Sukikos life, condemned to death for sin? Or is it life from the last Adam, Christ, the life of the never-dying spirit of God? Now, Paul makes that contrast explicit in verses 47 to 49. The first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. And again, there is an order in our bodily experience. First, the body animated from, with the life from Adam, then the body animated with the life from the second Adam. First, we bear the image of the man of dust that will return to dust. And then the image of the man of heaven at the resurrection. And in speaking of dust and heaven, there's also a contrast in the sphere for which this bodily life is fit. The life from Adam is only fit for this creation, but the life from heaven is fit for the presence of God. (coughs) It is bodily life from Christ and like Christ's risen life, fit for the presence of the living God, fit for the new heaven and earth where believers will dwell in God's presence forever and whose presence means every tear will be wiped from our eyes. Life, which is incorruptible, glorious, powerful, sustained and directed by the Spirit of Christ, who is the Spirit of life. The Lord Jesus guarantees his followers' resurrection life and he is the source of that resurrection life and that life will be like his Now, there's a lot to meditate on here, how different, gloriously different that life will be. But Paul has another point to make. Only resurrection life from Christ, incorruptible life, is fit for the new heaven and earth, fit to share in the triumph of God. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. See, the point of these verses is that whether we are alive or dead when Christ returns, we must all change we must all receive transformed resurrection life from the Lord Jesus. You see, Paul is thinking of that there'll be two categories of believers at Jesus' return. There's flesh and blood, those who are still alive at Jesus' return, those who still possess, as we see in verses 53 to 54, a mortal body, a body that is yet to die. That's one group of believers. And then there are those who are already dead when Christ returns, most believers whose bodies are experiencing corruption. Alive or dead at Christ's return, we will all be changed. 
all be given spiritual bodies, bodies animated by the life-giving spirit of God whose life never fails, bodies that are neither mortal or corruptible, for death will be no more. It will never again impact our relationship with God, our enjoyment of God's creation. It will never again cast its shadow over our joy, never trouble our peace, and no believer, alive or dead, will miss out. And at this point, the promised victory over death, the subjugation of death under Jesus' feet spoken of in verses 26 to 27 will be complete Death will be swallowed up in victory. No struggle, just gone. And as Paul contemplates that glorious day, he taunts fearsome death. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting, taunts the death that has held all our race in bondage and fear. And he can do this because of Christ. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God is giving us, and this is what you have to see, God is giving us now, now victory over sin and taking away its power through justifying us now through faith in Christ who died for our sins and rose again. You see, it's sin, our rebellion against God that makes death painful, a fearful torment. And sin we know uses the law both to condemn us and to provoke us to sin. But Christ has borne our sin on the cross and in that death has freed us both from the law's condemnation and reliance on the law to be right with God. Now, there's a lot more that could be said uh, Read Romans. Uh, But we are assured of our sharing in that final defeat of death because even now through faith we are justified, right with God, by faith in Christ who died for our sins. We are being given victory over the condemnation and judgment our sins deserve. Even now by faith we are receiving the Spirit of God, the same Spirit by whom God will raise us from the dead. Ours is the victory now. The hope of believers of rising with Christ, of resurrection life after death in the new heaven and earth is both sure and glorious. Embodied personal life, freed forever from death, fitted for the presence of the living God in the new heaven and earth. And it's a hope which, if it is real to us, should give a distinctive shape to believers' lives now. What kind of life does a hope of resurrection give rise to? We actually get a glimpse of that in this chapter. Let's start with verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people being baptised for them? Now, there's a lot of discussion, as you can imagine, about being baptised for the dead. But I'm convinced this is not talking about baptism on behalf of the dead, a kind of proxy baptism, but baptism on account of or because of the dead. 
It actually speaks of people being baptised because they want to share in the resurrection baptism promises with believers who have already died. They're getting baptised because they've been moved by their hope and they want to share it. Now, people were getting baptised because of their resurrection hope, Paul says. And they're doing this where baptism wasn't regarded as quaint or an acceptable family custom. It was something that set you apart from your society, distinguished you as suspect, because in it you confess that Jesus is Lord, when your society was saying Caesar is Lord. Resurrection hope will show in our lives in practices that both set us apart from our society and make no sense unless Jesus has risen from the dead. Let me give you some examples from today. They're pretty ordinary, but they're real. Again, baptism, where you entrust yourself to a living saviour, to live directed by him, not by your own feelings and desires, as your society says you should. Oh, the Lord's Supper, with the seriousness it brings to our lives, as it keeps the structures of Christian truth always before us. And the supper does, doesn't it? It proclaims the reality and seriousness of sin, the need for forgiveness. The forgiveness is only found in the death of Jesus and we live for his return. That sets us apart. Just meeting with others, giving your life a rhythm which is not set by pursuing your interests and pleasures but by determination to encourage others and yourself in persevering in a life that's ready to meet Jesus when he returns. Resurrection hope will show in our lives in practices that both set us apart from our society and make no sense unless Jesus has risen from the dead. And resurrection hope will also show in a life like Paul's that makes no sense if Christ has not been raised and we do not rise. Why are we in danger, he writes, every hour? I face death every day. Oh, if I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus, what good did that do to me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You know, Paul's pretty clear about the choice. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You can live like many around us do, a life that pursues present pleasure because there's no tomorrow, because you have to get it all now. A self-indulgent, self-directed life lived just for the present. You can live like that. But that is a life believers must consciously separate ourselves from, for Christ has been raised. And so will we be raised. And that self-indulgent life's a life out of touch with reality. Instead, if we believe in the resurrection, our life should be like Paul's. Now, I don't mean a life that faces the same dangers as Paul, but a lifestyle of self-control and self-denial that does everything for the glory of God, that seeks the good, the salvation of all. A life that makes no sense unless the Lord Jesus has risen from the dead. So, believer, when people look at your life at the end of your life, what do you want them to see? I must confess, I think about this more and more, right? 
What, what do you want them to see? Do you want them to see a conventional life? Perhaps a pallid copy of the lives of those around you who don't know God? Where, you know, you want what they want, but you've been restrained by fear of what others might think, your parents, your Christian friends, from really going for it. You know, life conformed to the values of this age really at its heart, where you've made your freedom to be who you want to be, doing what you want to be the guiding principle of your choices. Do you want people to see that at the end of your life? Or at your funeral? Better at the wake, funeral should be about the gospel. At your funeral, right? Do you want them to hear of a life whose choices are inexplicable without the resurrection? Where, say, you've made choices for sexual purity or faithfulness and perseverance in marriage because you know you'll rise. Where in your career choices you haven't pursued money or professional advancement but opportunities to do the good that brings Jesus honour. Where you made the choice of where to live, say, based on a commitment to making disciples, to allow you to be in a community where you could encourage and be encouraged, where you could invite others to hear the gospel and grow as disciples of Jesus. Where you've given yourself to seeking out others with the gospel, where you've prayed and you've spoken throughout your life so that they would turn and believe. What do you want people to see on the day you die? Our should give us, our hope should give us a distinctive life, a distinctive life that we persevere in. Because that's where Paul ends this great chapter on our sure and glorious resurrection hope, calling for perseverance. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the Lord's work, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Be steadfast, he says. Keep holding, keep holding fast to the gospel and the gospel hope and the persevering and persevering in the godly life it gives. Not for a week or a month, but year after year, confessing the truth of Jesus. Be immovable. There is and will be lots of pressure, internal and external, to change, to go and pursue other goals than the work of the Lord, to abandon unpopular pieces of Christian teaching, but to move away from the gospel out of a desire to have a more culturally acceptable message is to move away from Christ, who can alone raise us from the dead, be steadfast, immovable, But Paul's not calling for the immobility of inaction. Steadfastness and being immovable are to show in persevering wholeheartedly in the work of the Lord, always excelling or abounding, overflowing in the work of the Lord. (coughs) Now, the work of the Lord includes all service of Jesus, yes. But in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 16.10, Timothy is said to be someone who is doing the Lord's work just as I am. And so the work of the Lord here is particularly focused on the work of preaching the gospel that saves, the work of making disciples of all nations, 
seeking like Paul, not our own benefit, but the benefit of many, that they might be saved. And Paul says we should be engaged in this work always, not intermittently, not occasionally, or not for a season of life from which you then move on. See that a lot in the Christian life, don't we? Oh, yes, you can be keen when you're a youth group leader, but after that you marry, you settle down, you pursue your group. Right, that's, that's, no, says St Paul. Always, always, it's good for you to be involved decade after decade in every stage of life, always, and not reluctantly, not the bare minimum that you might do to kind of keep up your Christian membership, but abounding richly in the work of the Lord, sharing the gospel that will give life. And you do this, says St Paul, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain, not a waste of time. It's not a gamble if you believe the gospel. It's not, you know, you just, you know, you put down your money and you take your chances. No, no. You know, believer, now that because God has raised Jesus from the dead, you won't get to the end and be disappointed. Jesus reigns and he will raise you. And in his grace, you can live now knowing that what you do now for him, the work of the Lord, counts and counts for eternity. And what else does? What else are you doing with your life that counts for eternity? Christ has been raised from the dead. He will raise all who are his. That resurrection will be unimaginably glorious. So hard to think, but the end of death itself. And that sure and glorious hope should show in a distinctive life, a life that perseveres in abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, I don't know where you are tonight. But the first question is, do you know this hope for yourself? Have you believed the gospel? Do you know Christ has died for your sins, risen again and will return? Have you entrusted your life to him so that you know he will raise you from the dead? Do you know this hope? And do you show that you know it? Are you living a life that only makes sense because the Lord Jesus has been raised and at his coming he will raise you. That's the life I want for myself. It's the life I long for us all to live, a life that abounds in the work of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that sent your Son, our Lord Jesus, into the world to rescue us from sin and death, from being alienated from you, our good creator, forever. We thank you for that grace and we thank you for our wonderful saviour who has died for our sins in fulfilment of your word, been buried and who has been raised from the dead and who reigns now and will return and at his coming will raise us up to that glorious, imperishable, 
powerful life. That life we will have sustained and directed by your life-giving almighty spirit. A life fit for your presence without grief or pain, without death forever. We thank you for this hope and we pray in your mercy that your word would find deep root in our heart and bear fruit in a life that is steadfast, immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.